Well, good morning. It is feeling like Christmas, isn't it? Uh, this, uh, this past week, our small group got together. We had our Christmas party. It was so much fun. Everyone brought food, and then we brought like $5 gifts. Everyone exchanged gifts. And one of the guys got a bunch of Christmas socks. And so, uh, uh, so uh, in honor of my small group, and because it's Christmas this morning, I am wearing my <laughs> Christmas socks, huh? Yeah, Merry Christmas to y'all. Uh, to, to, uh, today we're going to start a, a three-week series looking at the prophecies in the book of Isaiah that point to the coming of the Messiah. So if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you this morning to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7. Now the story that we're going to look at today is going to give us a great deal of insight on how to make decisions in our life, and particularly important decisions. You know, when, when we make decisions, there are a number of key factors that affect whether or not we make a good decision. But one of the key factors is the place that we're at, the, the mindset that we have when we make that decision. So let me give you an example. In my home, my wife does all the grocery shopping. She's amazing. She can look at a product and tell you if it's a good price or not. Me, I just grab it and put it in the basket. So I rarely go shopping. But every once in a while, she gives me a shopping list. She says, Jonathan, would you go buy the groceries? I say, okay, I, I do that. Now, when I go to do the grocery shopping, this is how it works. I walk in the door. I start on my left in the bakery. I grab the bread. I go around the back. I grab the milk. I come around the far side. I grab the vegetables and the fruit. If necessary, I deke up an aisle to get something. Then I arrive at the till. I pay, and I'm out of there like that as fast as I can. Unless, unless I'm hungry when I go grocery shopping. <laughs> then everything changes. Then when I walk in the door, my first priority is to get the milk. And of course, you all know that the shortest distance from the front of the store to the milk is down the aisle with the chips and the candy. Right? <laughs> so of course, I got to go down there. And you know, as I'm going by, I'm like, you know, we might have a chip emergency one day. So I start filling my thing up with chips. Th- then... Then I come around to the bakery, and as I'm picking up that loaf of bread, I realize that those bakers got up at the crack of dawn, that they poured their heart and their passion and their love, not only into this loaf of bread, but into those really nice donuts in that case over there. So, I mean, I want them to feel bad, so I buy some of those. And then I come around to the fruit and vegetable aisle, and they always, they always put those like bulk bins there, you know, with like nuts and dried fruit and nuts and dried fruit with lots of candy in it. And that's kind of like buying fruits and vegetables, only it's already chopped up and ready to eat, isn't it? So I buy some of that too, right? The, the, the decisions that I make when I go shopping are very different when I'm hungry and when I'm not. When I'm not hungry, I just use in my head or the, the, the list that my wife gave me. But when I am hungry, I find myself making what, a lot of what I would call gut decisions, right? I just, it just, I got to do it. Now, the point, of course, is that the state of mind that we're in, the place that we're in when we make decisions, have a huge impact on how we make them. Of course, the grocery store is just a simple example. But in our life, sometimes it comes much bigger decisions, much more important decisions. And the question is, what's the best place? What's the best state of mind in which to make those kinds of decisions so that we make good decisions, so that we succeed at what we're dealing with? 
Well, that's what this story is about today that we're going to look at. It's a story about a man named Ahaz, and he finds himself facing a very difficult uh, decision. So, uh, join me. We're going to walk through this sort of verse by verse. So let's start. We just want to start at verse 1 and, and get the setting for this story. This is how it begins. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 1. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. So let's start here. Three kings. The first king... The main character in our story is a man named Ahaz. King Ahaz is the king of Judah, and his capital city is the city of Jerusalem. Now, he's being attacked by two other kings. One is a guy named Rezin, and he is the king of Syria. And the capital of Syria, of course, we know, is the city of Damascus. And the other king that is going to attack him is the king of Israel. Now, you might be saying, well, I thought Judah and Israel were the same nation. And under King David and under King Solomon, they were. But after that, they had a civil war. And the northern ten tribes broke off from the southern tribe of Judah and formed their own nation called Israel. But also often referred to as Ephraim. Because one of the biggest tribes, probably the biggest tribe that broke off was the tribe of Ephraim. So Israel, Ephraim is a northern part of what used to be greater Israel. And Judah is the southern part. So Israel has a king. His name is Pekah. And his capital city is Samaria. Okay? Three kings. Ahaz, king of Judah, is going to be attacked by the king of Syria and the king of Israel. Now the question is why? Why are these kings coming to attack? Well, the answer is because there's one more king. A a much bigger king uh, who is the king of the Assyrians. The Assyrians started in what is today northern Iraq and their empire began to grow and grow and they're like the superpower of the day and they began to sweep up through modern day Turkey and now they're beginning to put pressure on the country of Syria and in Israel because their goal eventually is to make it to Egypt. They want to take over Egypt. So the king of Syria and the king of Israel want Ahaz, the king of Judah, to join them in an alliance against the Assyrians. But Ahaz says, No way, I'm out. I don't want anything to do with it. So the king of Israel and the king of Syria decide, well, that's fine. If you're not joining us, we're going to come and attack you and we'll take you off the throne. We'll put another guy on the throne who actually will join us. And so now Ahaz has an important decision to make. How's he going to respond to this very real threat? Because if he gets it wrong, it'll go very badly for his people and especially for him. Because these kings, not only are they highly motivated... I mean, the king of Assyria is putting a lot of pressure. He's coming. But on top of that, 2 Kings, which gives us the historical background of this, tells us that they've already been successful in capturing some of the cities in his his country. So these kings are very capable of causing real trouble for the king of of Judah, for King Ahaz. So the question is, how is he going to respond to this threat? Well, look at verse 2. When the house of David was told... Syria is in league with Ephraim, that's with Israel. The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. So how did he respond? He was terrified. Their hearts were filled with fear. And rightfully so. I mean, these kings who were coming to attack them, they they were powerful. They had the ability to cause their city to be attacked, their families to be uh, murdered and killed, and for them to be taken away in chains. And so the king and the people, they're, they're filled with fear. 
And that's a natural response, isn't it? I mean, when, when something comes into our life, even if it's not a life and death thing, if something looks like it'll threaten our well-being, if, if there will be negative consequences down the road, chances are one of the emotions that we experience is fear. And that's okay. That's, that's a natural response. It causes us to take notice and to figure out what's going on. But often when we find ourselves in a fearful situation, it also means that we have to make some kind of an important decision. How are we going to respond? What will we do? And the question is, when we find ourselves in that kind of a place, what's the best state of mind? How is it that we should respond? Well, let's, uh, uh, let's look at uh, what happens for King Ahaz. Verse 3. The Lord said to Isaiah, the prophet, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jabush, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. So now God says to the prophet, look, you got to go talk to the king. And you know where you're going to find him? You're going to find him at the conduit by the upper pool. Now what's the king doing up here? Well, the answer is that the king is checking the water supply of Jerusalem. You see, the king knows that he can't just get his army together and go out to the battlefield and face these armies because they will totally crush him. So he's actually preparing for a siege of his capital city, of Jerusalem. And he wants to make sure that the water supply will last so that they can outlast the siege. So this king is incredibly fearful. And now look what God says to this king through the prophet Isaiah. Verses 4 to 9. And say to him, be careful, be quiet. Do not fear and do not let your hearts be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin in Syria and the son of Ramalia. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has devised evil against you, saying, let's go up against Judah and terrify it and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabil as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. Within 65 years, Ephraim, Israel, will be broken to pieces, so it will no longer be a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. So, God sends Isaiah the prophet, and this is his message to Ahaz the king. First of all, he says, be careful. Don't make any rash decisions. And be quiet. Calm, calm down. Manage your emotions. You can, you can control your, your, your emotions. And do not fear and do not let your heart be faint. Don't, don't let fear control or guide you. And then he says, here's why. Because things aren't actually as they seem. These two men who seem so fierce, so ferocious... They're actually like logs that have basically burned up in the fire. And all that's left is this smoldering stump. There's a lot of smoke, but there's not any fire at all. He goes on to say, look, think about who these guys are. They're just the sons of some other kings who died and left their throne to these guys. They're not gods. They will not succeed. So Ahaz, don't you fear. And here's the message that God has for Ahaz. And it's the, lesson that, the first lesson that we need to learn from this story today. And that's this. Important decisions should never, never be made based on fear. Fear is a natural response when there's a threat in our life. When, when it looks like things might go bad. 
but it shouldn't be the primary emotion that we have when we have to make a decision. Because, you know, when we try to decide things based on fear, we make poor decisions. We jump to conclusions. We're not thinking rationally, so we don't make good rational decisions. We shouldn't make our decisions when we're fearful, and yet people are tempted to do it all the time. I mean, people say things like this. I know that he can't hold down a job. Or or I know that she isn't really that interested in following Jesus, but I'm going to marry them because I'm scared that if I don't, I'm not going to get another person. I got to grab this one. Or people say things like, I got to cheat on this exam. Or or I got to cut corners at my work because I'm scared that I'm going to fail this course and then I'll be out of school, or, or, or I'm scared that my, my business will fail. Or people sometimes say, I, I know that I should say something because what's going on is not right, but I'm scared of the consequences of what will happen if I speak up in this situation. There'll be hard things happen in my life. You know, all the time we are, we are tempted to do or to not do or to say or to not say things because we're fearful of the consequences. And that fear is legitimate. It's real. There could be bad consequences from having to do or say certain things. But fear is the wrong place. It's the wrong state of mind from which to make those kinds of important decisions. God says to King Ahaz, look, don't decide on how you're going to respond to this based on fear. But so then how? I mean, okay, God, what then? Well, God's going to say, look at the second part of verse 9. This is how God responds. He says to Ahaz, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. If you're not firm in your faith, you will not be firm at all. In other words, Ahaz, if you're going to survive this, if you're going to make wise decisions in the midst of this, you need to be firm in your faith and your trust in God. You need to trust God so deeply that no matter what happens, you're confident that he will care for you. In other words, Ahaz, you have to to operate out of faith and not out of fear. Now, unfortunately, today many Christians don't understand what it means to live, uh, to have faith in God. They, they think that faith in God is about knowing a certain number of theological statements about God and just simply believing those. Now, they're partially right. You can't have faith in someone that you don't know. So you've got to understand these statements about who God is, what he's like. But that in and of itself does not constitute faith. Faith is not only knowing about somebody, but it's actually making decisions and acting based on that knowledge. Making real decisions in the real world that have real consequences in your life. That's real faith. Now let me give you an example. A number of years ago, I had the privilege to go with some people down to Florida. And and we uh, went to Cape Canaveral. Uh, Cape Canaveral is where the American space program is from. The, the space shuttle and all their rockets are launched there. And we're going to go take a tour. So uh, we went to the visitor center. They put us on a bus and we began to drive way out to where the launch pad is. And as we were driving along, I looked over and out the window, kind of in a field all by itself, was this tiny little rocket. And I looked at that. And, and the tour guide said, you see that, that rocket out there? That rocket is a replica of the first rocket that that put the first American in space. And I looked at that and I said, are you kidding? I mean, that thing was at the most 80 feet high and about five feet around. 
I mean, it looked like a little candle stuffed with rocket fuel with a little bubble on top and a big fuse on the bottom. I thought, anyone who climbs on that has got to be crazy. And yet there was a guy who did, an astronaut, a man named Alan Shepard. Now, if that astronaut, if Alan had had come out one day and looked at that thing and said, I believe that that rocket can take me into outer space. And I can tell you how much thrust it has, how much fuel is in there. I could tell you how it was built and where it was built. And I know how the, the operating system works. I believe that can take me into space. But I'm not actually going to get in it. That wouldn't be genuine faith, would it? The real faith was to get on the spacesuit, climb up those stairs, walk in there, strap himself in and say, all right, light the fuse. Here we go. That's genuine faith. And that's the kind of faith that God is calling on Ahaz to have in the middle of this crisis. It's also the kind of faith that he calls on us to have. Brendan Manning writes this. The faith that animates the Christian community. In other words, the faith that that gives life to who we are. Is less a matter of believing in the existence of God. Than a practical trust in his loving care. Under whatever pressure may come our way. The stakes here are enormous, for I have not said in my heart, God exists, until I have said, I trust him. You understand what he's saying here? He's saying, look, just just the fact that we believe a certain set of things doesn't really mean that we're people of faith. All kinds of people in this world believe all sorts of different things. What makes us a people of faith, what gives us life, is the fact that we actually live based on it. That we make hard decisions when there are scary things in our life based not on our fear, but rather based on what we know about who God is. When we have that kind of faith, that kind of deep trust in God, that actually changes our perspective on what's going on. It changes and redefines the situation for us. And this is what God is calling on Ahaz to do now in the situation that he finds himself in. And this is the second lesson for us. And that's this, good decisions flow out of a deep trust in God. You see, deep trust in God, that changes our perspective. That, that gives us wisdom. That gives us the guidance necessary to make good choices. We have to operate out of faith and not out of fear. And that sounds good, but it's much easier said than done, isn't it? I mean, if you've, you've ever faced a significant decision where there's Scary consequences. The question really is, and probably was for Ahaz too, really? Really is trusting God the best choice here? Is he really worth trusting? Or is that just what the prophet and the preacher have to say because, you know, that's what they have to say? Well, look at what God says next. Verses 10 to 12. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz says, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. See, God knows Ahaz's heart. This is a big decision. And he says, look, ask for a sign. Now, the sign that God offers Ahaz here is not a sign to give him faith. A sign doesn't give anyone faith. And if you don't believe me, you just have to go back and read the history of the people when they left Egypt. You know, they saw all the the plagues on Pharaoh. They saw the Red Sea open before them. They saw manna come from heaven. And yet, all those signs didn't give them enough faith to believe that God could safely bring them into the promised land. And the desert was littered with their bodies as they died out in the desert. 
You see, faith isn't something that comes from seeing signs. Faith is something that God gives you in your heart that, that, that you trust in him. Instead, the sign that, that, that God is offering to Ahaz here is a sign that says, after you're faithful, if you put your trust in me, here's a sign that you made the right choice, that I will indeed do what I say I will do. So God says to Ahaz, what do you want? I mean, ask anything. And Ahaz responds, oh, thank you, but I will not put the Lord to the test. That sounds so pious. And in fact, he's quoting a verse from Deuteronomy, which warns us that we shouldn't demand a sign from God. We have no right to demand a sign from God. But in this case, God was offering a sign. God said, Ahaz, what do you want? And Ahaz turns him down. So what's going on here? Well, it turns out there's something else going on in Ahaz's heart. This story doesn't tell us this, but, but the Second Kings gives us the background. And what's going on, unbeknownst to Isaiah, but certainly known to God, is that, is that uh, Ahaz has already secretly decided that he's going to put his trust, his faith, in someone besides God. He's going to put his faith in the king of Assyria. In fact, Second Kings tells us that either he already was about to or he would shortly go into the temple in Jerusalem and strip it clean of all the silver and gold and he would send it to the king of Assyria and beg the king of Assyria to come and to attack the king of Israel and the king of Syria. And this was a fateful choice that Ahaz made. I mean, this was like a mouse who was being attacked by two other mice who took all of his treasure and sent it to the cat and invited the cat to come and rescue him. That's not a good choice. Instead of putting his faith in the one who gave him everything that he had, instead he was going to put his faith in one who would eventually come and take it all away from him. This is a story that does not end well. So, Ahaz decides he's going to put his faith in, in Assyria. How does God respond? Well, look at the next verses, 13 to 16. And he, Isaiah the prophet, said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my, weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land of those two kings that you dread will be deserted. Now Isaiah says, okay, okay. You don't want to ask God for a sign? No problem. God is going to give you a sign. Here's the sign. The virgin will conceive and have a son and she'll call his name Emmanuel. And when that boy is old enough to know the difference between right and wrong, by that time these two kings, their lands will be deserted. That's an interesting sign, isn't it? I mean, we would think that God would say, here's a sign, I'm going to send lightning bolts from heaven. Or I'm going to stop the sun in the sky. Or, or, or the moon will turn to blood red. But he said, here's the sign. The virgin will, will conceive and give birth to a son. So what's this all about? Well, let's start by talking about the mother. Over the years, there's been a great deal of debate about the word that Isaiah used to describe the mother, the word virgin. Now, in Hebrew, there was four words that he could have used. And he, choose, he chose the most unusual word. He could have said, a woman will conceive and have a child. Or he could have said, a girl will conceive and have a child. 
He could have used the the word in Hebrew, the, the technical word for a person who has never had sex. But he doesn't choose that word either. Instead, the word that he uses is the Hebrew word halma. And it simply means, it literally means a young woman of marriageable age. He says a young woman of marriageable age will conceive and have a child. But here's the thing that you have to understand. Uh, that would have been a woman in her mid-twenties, uh, sorry, uh, mid-teens to early twenties. And in that day, in that world, of course she would have been a virgin. That culture was so different than our culture. People didn't go out and sleep around all the time. A young woman who was at that stage in her life was most certainly a virgin. But in this case, in Isaiah's day, the emphasis of the sign wasn't on the fact that she was a virgin. The emphasis of what Isaiah was saying was that this young woman would conceive and give birth to a son. But now you might be saying, well, okay, what's the big deal about that? I mean, young women conceive and give birth to children all the time. Why is this such an amazing sign? Again, our context is so different. You have to understand what news just came to that city. The news was that there would be these powerful armies coming and that they were going to lay siege to that city. Now, their goal was to break down the walls, to come in, to attack, to rape, to destroy. But if they couldn't do that, then their their next plan was to starve that city. And that meant that every mouth that you had to feed was one more mouth that was taking out food that others could have had. And the sieges in that time could become so brutal, unbelievably brutal. In fact, the Bible tells stories of mothers who literally killed and ate their own children. They got so desperate. Now imagine that. I mean, in our day and age, you know, people don't have a baby until they both got their education, until their careers have both started, until they have a home, two cars, and the baby room is perfectly ready. Then they feel that it's safe enough to have a baby. Imagine, imagine the kind of faith it would take for a virgin, for a young woman of that age, in light of the threat that was coming upon her city and the consequences to, to become pregnant and have a son. It was an act of faith. It was an act of trust in the sovereignty and the loving care of the Almighty God. It was a way of saying, as terrible as things may seem, God is surely with us. And so Isaiah says, the the virgin, the young woman who has every reason in the world not to have a baby, she's going to conceive and have a son. And she's going to call him God with us. And by by the time that baby is old enough to know right and wrong, the threat from these kings will be over. So how long is that? How how long until a child knows the difference between right and wrong? Well, some people would say by about two years old, a child begins to know what's right and wrong. Others would say, well, no, it's by about the years uh, 10 or 12 that a, a child has the cognitive abilities to make those kinds of decisions, right and wrong. Either way, it wasn't long in the scheme of things. And so Isaiah says to the king, here's the sign that God will be faithful to do what he says he will do. You can measure it by the years of a child that will shortly be conceived. Now, who is that child? Well, the Bible doesn't say. Uh, some think that that, was, uh, that that child was the son of King Ahaz himself, the boy who would grow up to become King Hezekiah. Other people say, no, we think that that boy is actually the son of Isaiah, that his first wife died, that he was in the process of remarrying, and that his second wife would bear a son that would be the sign. Other people say, no, I think it's an anonymous woman. We don't know who this was. We don't know for sure. But here's the thing. Regardless of who it was, whether it was Hezekiah or Isaiah's son or another another boy, 
The fact of the matter was he was a sign that God would do what he said he would do. You could measure the promises of God against how old that boy was. It was a very simple, very clear sign. And history shows, as it always does, that God was indeed faithful. Historical sources tell us that this threat came against the city of Jerusalem, against Ahaz, in the year 735 B.C. So in that year, if a young woman had conceived and given birth to a child, it would take nine months. And then if it took another two years before that boy was able to know right or wrong, that's about a three-year span. And again, historical sources tell us that three years after that, in the year 732, the king of Assyria came and totally destroyed the king of Syria, the city of Damascus, totally wiped it out. And by the time that boy was able to know right from wrong, that threat was gone. But on top of that, 10 years later, in the year 722, when that boy turned 12 years old, the king of Assyria came and destroyed Samaria and the people of Israel. In fact, when he took over the people of northern Israel, of that land, he literally deported them and scattered them across the ancient Near East. And he brought in new people so that, as Isaiah said in this prophecy, they ceased to exist as a people. You see, God's word was utterly faithful and true. And each time, each time the news would have come to that city that the king of Syria has been defeated, the king of Israel has been defeated. Each time, I'll bet you that that mother who as a virgin stepped out in faith to have that son would have looked up, seen him playing over there and would have whispered to herself, God is with us. God is faithful. God will care for us no matter what. And each time the King Ahaz got the news, he could have done the math. He would have known full well how old that boy would be. He'd be three and he'd be 12. And he'd say, oh, indeed, the prophet was right. The word of the Lord stands true. You see, the sign was the boy and the sign was to show that faith in God was the way that Ahaz should have gone. And here's the third lesson that we need to learn from this story. And that's this, we can trust God because God always, always, always does what he says he will do. Now, that doesn't mean everything will be easy. You know, in this prophecy, it says the boy will eat curds and honey. Curds is like fermented milk, and you know what honey is. But the point of Isaiah saying this is that curds and honey is what what people ate when they were desperate. It's what they ate when there wasn't grain and meat to eat, because you could sort of gather it, you could find it, you could eat it. So the message, the sign isn't if you trust God, it'll just be easy. Everything will be wonderful. That's not, that's not the message here at all. The message is, no matter how hard it gets, God will be faithful and you can trust him. The words of Isaiah are a powerful prophecy to the king of Judah. And they're a lesson to us about trusting God. But, but they're more than that. If you haven't already noticed, they also, they also are a prophecy about the coming of the Messiah. Way down the road. Let me show you. Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, speaking of the birth of Jesus. This is what the apostle writes. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. 
All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So here's the question. How is it that a prophecy given by the prophet Isaiah to King Ahaz about events that would take place within the next 12 years, how is it that that prophecy also applies to the coming of the Messiah over 700 years later? Well, let me, let me help you understand how this works. I grew up in the city of Calgary. Uh, I don't know if you've been there. Not a lot of reason to go there. Uh, but uh, if you've ever been, you know that it's in the middle of the prairies. It's flat in every direction. Except to the west. About an hour to the west, the majestic Rocky Mountains just sort of rise up out of the earth. And, and, and they're, they're, they're beautiful. And the sun sets in the west. And so that means in the evening, as the sun goes down, it begins to silhouette those mountains. And they're spectacular. Now, if you were to take one of those mountains and watch as it's silhouetted, as the sun goes down, you would see everything. It's just perfect. And, but it would look to you like it's flat. It would look like somebody took a piece of cardboard and the scissors and cut it all out and just placed it there as the sun set behind it. However, on the next morning, if you got up and in the light of day, you got on an airplane ride from Calgary to Vancouver. As you flew over, in the, in the light of day, you, from 30,000 feet, you'd look down, you'd find out it's very different. First of all, you'd see that that mountain is very three-dimensional. There's a great deal to it. But then you'd see also that what you thought was one peak actually happens to be two peaks. There was a smaller mountain with a huge valley in between and then a larger mountain behind it. And the second mountain was actually more majestic and more beautiful than the first. And that's a picture of what Old Testament prophecies about Jesus are like. For Isaiah, it was like he was in Calgary looking at at one peak. And it was beautiful and it was majestic and it was so clear. This is the word of the Lord and God fulfilled it totally. But the words that he's spoken were spoken under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So even though he couldn't perceive that there was a second peak there, the Holy Spirit knew. And 700 years later, when the, when the Apostle Matthew, in light of, 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 of Jesus Christ and who he was, and, and from the perspective of 30,000 feet looking back over history, looked at it, he could see that there wasn't one mountain peak, but that there's two. And the valley in between was the 700 years. And now he says, oh, the first prophecy was amazing, but the second is more brilliant. It's more amazing. It's more beautiful because it points to the coming of Messiah. You see, just like in Isaiah's day, the virgin would conceive and bear a son. Only unlike the virgin in Isaiah's day, Mary, the mother of Jesus, never knew a man until after Jesus was born. Instead, as Luke points out, the Holy Spirit came upon her and the power of the Most High overshadowed her and she conceived by the Holy Spirit and bore a son. And this is so important because this means that Jesus was both fully human but also fully God. And therefore, the perfect intermediator between us and God. And just like in Isaiah's day, his name would be called Emmanuel, God with us. But in Isaiah's day, the idea is, in spite of all of his troubles, God is with us. But in Jesus' day, it literally meant God with us. God himself in flesh, dwelling among us, knowing what it's like to be us, revealing himself to us, and suffering and dying for us. And then, unlike in Isaiah's day, when they didn't know who that boy was, in Jesus' day, we knew exactly who he was. Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. 
the fulfillment of the second prophecy was a thousand, or of the same prophecy, but in, in Jesus was a thousand times greater than the first time. But here's the thing. The sign remains the same. The child who was born to a virgin, who, who we call Emmanuel, this child is a sign that God is utterly faithful to do what he says he will do. And therefore, you can totally trust him. You know, since the day the serpent deceived Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and brought separation between us and God, God has promised he would redeem those lost in sin. And for thousands of years, through the twists and turns of history, God was not only preparing but pointing to the coming of the Messiah. And when Jesus was born, God fulfilled the words of the prophet Isaiah and he gave us the ultimate sign that we can trust him. He gave us his own son, Jesus. And this is the final point that's so important that you understand from this. And this is this. Jesus is the ultimate sign that you can trust God. You and I, we don't need another sign because we have Jesus. He loves us so much. He cares for us. He came in the flesh. He dwelt among us and he died and rose again so that we might have life. God always does what he says he will do. And therefore, you can trust him no matter what. So when fear comes into your life, when there's a threat, when you look down the road and say, this could go very bad for me. And you have to make some decisions. Don't make those based on fear. You still have to make those decisions, but instead you make them based on trust. Trust in a good God. A God who loves you. A God who is always faithful to you. It may not always be easy, but in the end, it's always the best choice. And when you trust him, he will always see you through. Because in the end, he is the God who sent his own son, Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. And that, brothers and sisters, that's good news for us. Would you stand with me for closing prayer? Oh, let's pray. God, we thank you for these words that you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the prophet Isaiah. God, words for for so long ago, but, but they pointed to when Jesus would come. And God, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you that because of him, we know again that we can trust you no matter what. And so today I pray for those who are struggling, those who have scary things happening in their lives, those who are worried and, and have fear. God, I pray even as they, they realize that, Father, that they would make a choice to trust you, to put their faith in you. God, to know that you are always faithful, that you will care for them because you sent Jesus. And Father, I pray that as they make their decisions that they would rest then in the peace of knowing that you care for them. God, thank you. What a good God. How kind, how gracious to us. And now, Father, as we go from this place and uh, into this day and this week again, we invite you to come with us, to go before us, to prepare the way and to work in and through us for your name's sake. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a good day.